In the Bible, all roads or paths seemingly lead to the book of Romans. Paul here, in chapters 5 to 8, is giving glimpses from different angles about the Christian living under and within grace. Grace being God's unmerited favour to those who are undeserving sinners. It's like Paul is creating this fabulous stained glass sphere depicting life for the Christian believer who is now under grace and has Jesus as their master and Lord. In our passage from Romans 8, we come to yet another angle with yet another scenario. This passage of the Bible is diamond-encrusted gold, the purest of gold and clearest of diamonds. Some people consider that speaking about this passage is akin to somebody trying to describe Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with mere words. If that were true, then tonight we have the ode to joy. But we start with prayer. Father, we thank you that we can meet together around your word to learn from it, to be transformed by your spirit who lives within us. Help us as we think about this, as I speak and others listen, and I also listen, so that we may uh, know that we have met with you, the living God, through the pages of this, your word. Amen. We live in a troubled world, I'm sure you are aware of that as did the original recipients of Paul's letter. Now, Paul is assuring his Roman readers that even when the trials of life hit them, God is secure and their salvation is assured. Despite what anybody can do to them or what troubles they may have to endure, God is secure and their salvation is assured. The Apostle Paul the great Apostle Paul is assuring his readers, the Roman church, that God will not separate himself from them during their pains and trials of life. I wonder what you're undergoing currently in your life. Suffering comes to us in all ways, one way or another. Three weeks ago I visited the funeral of John, a dear friend who died of cancer. This last week I spoke at a funeral for the father of Kathy, who had a long terminal illness, and eventually he died. Suffering of varying degrees is common to all people of all time and of all cultures. Whether it is self-inflicted or inflicted by others, troubles and sufferings unite all of humanity. It is a common denominator. And of course, there are no easy answers. With that said, let us look together at this most wonderful piece of Scripture. Let me read from verse 18 to 22. I consider that our present sufferings 
are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. When God finished his creation, it was a good creation. Just as Adam was made in the image of God, so are we. But because of Adam's sin, this imperfect world, including us, bears the mark of sin. The creation is fallen and marred, as are all humans. Creation is groaning. There is suffering and death. There is pain, all of which is, of course, the result of Adam's sin. It is not the fault of creation itself. Note the words Paul uses to describe the plight of creation. Suffering in verse 18. Pride, verse 20. Bondage, verse 21. Decay, verse 21. And pain, verse 22. However, this groaning is not a useless thing. Why? Paul goes on to compare it to a woman giving birth. There is pain in giving birth. But the pain will end when the child is born. One day, creation will be delivered and the groaning creation will become a glorious creation once more. As people of the kingdom, Paul exhorts his readers to not focus on the sufferings of today, but look forward to the coming glory. Paul says that today's groaning bondage will be exchanged for tomorrow's glorious freedom. And then the members of the kingdom groan. Let me read from verse 23 to 25. Not only so, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The creation groans, as do we. The reason we as Christians groan, writes Paul, is because we have experienced what he calls the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, a foretaste of the glory to come when all those who are Christians, all those who are in the kingdom, shall live with our King in glory. Just as the nation of Israel tasted the first fruits of Canaan when the spies returned in Numbers chapter 12, so we Christians have tasted the first blessings of heaven through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This should encourage us to want to see the Lord, receive our new bodies, to live with him and serve him forever in everlasting life. We are waiting for this great adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies when Jesus himself returns again. This is the thrilling climax to the adoption that took place at our conversion, when the spirit of adoption gave us the standing of an adult in the kingdom of God. 
when Jesus returns, we shall enter into our full inheritance. Meanwhile, we wait and hope, as Paul writes here in Romans 8, verse 24. What hope is this, we ask? It is the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. The best is yet to come for us. As Christians, people of the kingdom of God, as God's children, we should not get frustration as we see and experience suffering and pain in this world as we live in the kingdom. Paul exhorts that Christian believers should know and remember that the suffering of today will one day give way to eternal glory. Wow! And thirdly, the Holy Spirit groans. Reading from verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Wow! And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So creation groans. God's people groan. What about God? Is God a distant God who is not concerned with the sufferings of his creation or his people? By all means, no. Our God is not a distant God, but a personal God. A God actively concerned for his creation and his people. God is concerned about the sufferings we go through and the troubles we endure. God desires for the redemption of his creation and his people. When Jesus walked the earth, he saw what sin was doing to men, women and creation. And when he did, this happened. Jesus wept. Do you not think that is an amazingly profound? God wept. Paul writes that God the Holy Spirit groans with us and that he feels the burdens of our weakness and suffering and he lifts us up. Holy Spirit is the comforter. He is the counsellor. He is the helper who lives within us. And as we struggle to persevere as we sometimes do, is it because we forget to ask for his help, his comfort and his wisdom? But the Spirit does more than groan. The Spirit prays for us in his groaning so that we might be led into the will of God. We do not always know God's will for us. We do not always know how to pray for ourselves. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us so that we might live in the will of God even though we are suffering in some way. The Holy Spirit shares the burdens with us as we endure and persevere. And now let me talk about the freedom for God. I'd like to concentrate here on verse 28. And I like the way the message translation of the Bible paraphrases it. Romans 8 verse 28. 
That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. For your good is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Joseph, Moses and Jeremiah were surely in Paul's mind as he concentrated on this. For example, from Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, after he is reunited with his brothers, said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Or Moses, as he tried to get Israel into shape while they whinged and whined about the law frequently, told them it was for their own good. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? Walk in obedience to him, love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Or take Jeremiah, the ancient prophet, as the ancient Israelites were in exile. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah and verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's. Plans to prosper you for your good, not to harm you. Plans which will give you a hope and a future. Millions of Christians over the centuries have taken great comfort and hope from Romans 8 verse 28. I wonder if any of the recipients of this letter recalled Paul's words to them when that horrible little man, the Emperor Nero butchered the Christians in Rome just a few short years later after receiving this letter. I wonder what their response was. And I can imagine that they were comforted. Paul writes here, In all things God works for our good. Now the phrase all things includes not only the good, the happy and the pleasant things in life, but also the bad, the unhappy, and the unpleasant things as well. It includes evil, sickness, and death. At the times when we are happy and things are going well, it's very easy to agree with this verse. But in times of trouble, this verse is hard to understand, and still harder to believe. For the millions of Christians who have spent their lives in jail, or have been killed for the faith, we cannot possibly say that all things have been for their good in this world. If that is so, how then are we to understand this verse? Perhaps we should understand it this way. All the things that happen to us here on earth, God will work for our good in heaven. In the previous verses, Paul teaches about our future hope and future glory. Therefore, in this verse, the good that Paul talks about is therefore heavenly good, not earthly good. But having said that, it is equally true that God is concerned for our welfare in this earthly life. He cares for our bodies, our health, even our food and clothing. When God allows trouble to come into our lives, he usually uses that trouble to bring about some good result in our lives here on earth 
according to both our writer Paul and to the Apostle James, in James 1 verse 2 to 4. For example, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had that stroke back in 2003. It is through troubles that our faith is tested and strengthened. Through various kinds of trouble, God disciplines us so that we might become more, 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 more like his son Jesus, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12. And the most important thing to remember about this verse, verse 28 that's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. The most important aspect of that is that the promise given here is only applicable to those who love God. Those who are his children and in his kingdom. That is, those who have been called according to his purpose and are therefore members of the kingdom of God. If we love God, we are called according to his purpose and are therefore members of the kingdom of God. Then we can fully trust him to work for our good in all things. Our hope is in God. He is faithful and able to fulfill all he has promised. If this does not describe you, then please do see somebody about how you can know this God. As those of us who are in the kingdom of God that would call ourselves Christians, believing Christians, Paul exhorts us to never give up in times of trial and suffering. And why? Because God is at work in the world. Paul encourages us that God has a perfect supreme plan and that he has two purposes in that plan, our good and God's glory. Ultimately, we will be transformed into the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's ultimate goal for us, to be like his son. Best of all, God's plan will succeed. He has the victory, and that victory was gained at the cross of Calvary. It started in eternity when it chose us in Jesus Christ. God predestined that one day we would be like his son. The word predestination here applies only to those in the kingdom of God, not to those outside the kingdom. Nowhere in scripture are we taught that God chooses who will remain outside his kingdom. If people remain outside the kingdom, it is because they choose to by refusing to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Those whom he chose, God called, when they responded to his call. He justified them by taking away their guilt and sin, and he also glorified them. This means that the believer has already been glorified in Jesus. The revelation of the glory awaits the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! Can I hear an Amen? So let's recapitulate and then we shall conclude. Because there is a difference. There is no point somebody speaking here if there is no application given to us to go on with as we walk the Christian life under grace. We have seen together tonight that God is not distant, but he is close and personal 
and that we know he himself has suffered. God cares for his creation and for his people through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Times of trouble may come, and we are being transformed into the image of God the Son, Jesus Christ. We have seen tonight that we will one day have freedom from pain and suffering. I can't wait. Freedom to truly live, to truly be alive. We also saw that there is to be no fear from separation from God. God is for us. Christ died for us. God the Holy Spirit lives within us, praying for us, guiding us, empowering us, and is the seal of our salvation. God has declared us his sons and daughters if we choose to follow him. Jesus Christ prays for us and he loves us. Do you sometimes get discouraged and frustrated in times of trouble as I do sometimes? I have to ask myself questions. Questions such as how can we believers ever be discouraged and frustrated when we already share the glory of God? Our suffering today guarantees much glory for us when Jesus Christ himself returns in glory. How can we be discouraged when the God we love and serve, who has called us to follow him, who himself had great anxiety the night before he suffered and died on the cross? How can we be discouraged when we know that this Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father? Jesus still had his scars when he ascended. How can we be discouraged when this Jesus will come back again one day to gather us? Wow! And a final question. Where is God? What does he have to do with it? God doesn't shelter us in the sufferings and hard times of life because we need them for our spiritual growth. We learned about that back in Romans 5 and also for our transformation into the image of Jesus, God's own Son. And as we read in verse 28, God assures us that the difficulties of life are working for us and not against us. God allows trials and sufferings to come that they may be used for our good and for his glory. We endure trials for his sake, and since we do, do you think that he will abandon us? Of course not. That is just silliness. God, our God, a personal God, he lifts us through the hard times. So, finally, how can we conclude? Folks, we all have troubles. There are no easy answers to most of them. I don't even have answers for my own troubles. My memory sometimes is like a sieve. Little bits get caught. Other days it's more like a funeral. Some days I have to put up with people falsely accusing me. But in all this, I know God is there. I may forget many things, but I have not yet forgotten that. God loves me. Dave Roberts. God is there for me. Dave Roberts. God is whom I depend upon and personally know to be totally reliable in every way. In his own time and not always in the time that I want because God knows best for those in the community out there we need to be God's hands and feet 
We need to radically show people out there and in here that God radically cares and loves for each of them. Too often people in need, both within the church and outside it, are shown care and concern for a little while, but gradually as time goes on, the caring and loving of that person diminishes and ultimately ceases. Dogged persevering to love and care is required. We can love and care for all using the power and imagination of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. If we do it in our own strength, we may help some, but we can't help all. We will grow weak. So we rely on the power of the Spirit. And all sorts of excuses are given for not showing care and love, but in reality there can be no excuse or reason. Not caring means not loving. Love is to be for all people, regardless of personality, conflicts, opinions, gender, sexuality, prejudice and bias. You don't have to agree with people's choices, but you do have to show you love and care for them. Lots of people, too many I would say, leave churches through the back door because they don't get the care they need and desire. Lots of people won't even listen to us because they see that churches and Christians are not showing love towards them or others they know. Again, too often I would say. Too often a church can be interested in its own little world, concerned for its own little program, rather than God's program of love and care for all people. They are churches that look after only the interest of select people within its walls and community. The church is to look after all interests of all members of its local community and those who come within its own walls. If you are a Christian here, the troubles and suffering we endure are all part of living in the kingdom of God. It's part of life. It is as we look to the future, as we see that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus and to the supreme glory of God, not for our own glory. And I've heard some American preachers recently say that it is for our own glory. How wrong they are. In any pain and suffering we endure, we must not give up. We persevere. God perseveres with us because God has not given up on us and neither does he or will he give up. God the Son died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day so that you and I may have this new life. Wow! And what's more, God the Holy Spirit comes and lives with inside us. Me! You, for it is when we are weak that God is strong. I don't know what you're going through at the moment. Hold on to Jesus. This is the Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Jesus that will one day take our face in his hands and wipe away our tears. Oh, what a day! We will say it was all worth it. And yet, even though I know this, I still have the impudence to often cry out with frustration and confusion to the Father, Why, Dad? 
And then he assures me that he loves me with an everlasting and enduring love. But he never tells me why. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, If God is wiser than us, his judgment must differ from ours on many things, and not least on good on evil. What seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes, and what seems to us evil may not indeed be evil. And finally, finally, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, please do see somebody about how you may take that step, or at least ask for some more information. Okay, church, let's go and radically love and care for other people that we meet or others that we know who need to see God's radical love and care in action. Amen.